Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm your host, your boy, Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. At first glance, it might seem a little surprising that the comedian Aparna Nancharla has for so long felt so insecure, like a fraud. She's in the middle of a successful career in entertainment, after all. She's a well-established stand-up comedian with recurring roles in TV shows like Search Party and Mythic Quest. She's also done voice work in animated hits like Bob's Burgers and BoJack Horseman. But uh, Aparna has long wrestled with imposter syndrome, sometimes called imposter phenomenon, that persistent feeling that you're only pretending to be capable and intelligent, a constant fear that you're going to be found out. She's now written a whole book about this called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome, in which she goes deep on issues such as anger, social anxiety, and stage fright. And she talks a lot about what she has tried that has helped. For this interview, I invited my wife, Dr. Bianca Harris, to join us. She has long wrestled with imposter syndrome herself. She's working on her own book. I thought she would add a lot to the conversation, and she did. So here we go now with Aparna Nancharla. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller Thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the... Uh, Underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. 
And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I always love it when uh, the people behind a product that my family already uses tell us that they want to be sponsors of this show. Today, it's Tidy Cats. As you may know, we have uh, an unreasonable amount of cats, four of them. So we use a lot of kitty litter, and Tidy Cats is great. Uh, they have a product called Tidy Care Alert, which uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help you put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Whether you have one or four cats, they make it easy to keep track. Plus, it's low dust and lightweight with long-lasting ammonia control from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. I'm not a vet, but I do love cats. Tidy Cats. Check them out. Aparna Nancharla, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you. And please meet my wife, Dr. Bianca Harris, a fellow imposter syndrome sufferer. Hello. Right. hello. Nice to meet you. Good to meet another, another fraud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Same. So when did you start suspecting, Aparna, that you were a fraud? Do you have memories of the earliest instances of that suspicion sneaking up on you? I was trying to pinpoint when mine started. I couldn't think of an exact memory. I think just as a child, I often felt that everyone else in school had received some sort of seminar or instruction manual that I hadn't. And I just constantly felt like I was just struggling to fit in or catch up. And I feel like, yeah, that feeling has dogged me my entire life. Just this feeling that everyone else is somehow privy to information that I don't have. On some level, that doesn't strike me as totally uncommon. Right. So where do you draw the line between sort of normal insecurity and full-on syndrome? Yeah, I guess for me, it really felt like it came out in full force because I started pursuing comedy but had a day job for many years. So when I got my first comedy writing job, I think that was the first time I was in an environment where... I was treated like, okay, you're a full-time comedian. And I started to feel like, oh gosh, no, I, I don't, I think you've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I shouldn't be here. <laughs> especially because my first writing job, I was like temping right before that. So it was like a week ago, I was a temp, which is the definition of disposable labor. So to then be like hired as an official member of creating a TV show, I was like, this is, something isn't right here. Did you settle into that at some point? Or I know it's still there, but did it improve? I would say I've started to come to terms with it, especially since writing a book. I think I have been forced to have a lot of stern conversations with myself about how I see myself. But I still think in group environments where I'm comparing myself to other people, which I often struggle with, it's really hard for me not to see everyone else as having some sort of inherent gift or ability that I just don't have access to. Why do you think, given that you've been, in your words, dogged by this 
suspicion that you're a fraud or you don't fit in or everybody else got a memo that you were excluded from. Why do you think you went into the most insecurity provoking (laughs) business known to humankind? I think I would explain that as the way I've made most of my life decisions, which is just that I'm like, okay, maybe this, like I'm someone who's been a seeker in many ways. Like I'm always looking for the thing that will make things make sense for me. And I happen to wander into stand up in that I tried an open mic during college. And as I tell people often, like it went well enough the first time that I had enough incentive to keep going, but I feel like it very easily, if it hadn't gone well, I would have pivoted to miming or something else, like whatever came (laughs) next in my little path of discovery. But yeah, I've very often been someone who's bad at setting goals. So it's very much like, oh, this seems to be working. I'm just going to see where this goes. I wonder too, though, if at least subconsciously part of the choice more with acting than with comedy, but also comedy is that you do separate from yourself. And so in some ways it maintains a barrier where you have this alter ego or persona that it shields yourself from the world and vice versa. Yeah, that's a great point. Cause I do feel like when I started writing comedy, it did feel like because I'm an introverted shy person, it felt like a way to translate the inside of my head to the rest of the world. And I think you're right. It's like more you're giving it through this filter of performance or just in this kind of controlled planned way that gives me more security, I think, than just having a conversation like this, where it's, I don't know exactly what I'm going to say ahead of time. But then the feedback is on the success of that character and the performance and not necessarily the core of who you are, which if you can't penetrate that, then of course, for most of us, the imposter complex stays alive and well. Yeah. And I think with comedy, because you're going for that one reaction, laughter, it also simplifies to just like, what is expected of me in showing up? What are my goals and like things I need to accomplish here? And it just makes it very simple and controlled. And I think that maybe appealed to me as someone who's often feels like they're floundering internally. Bianca, it does remind me a little bit of you as a doctor at times inhabiting a slightly different, maybe like a kind of persona as opposed Mm to your role the rest of your life. Absolutely. It was a place of safety as well. I learned to rely on the person in the white coat. I knew exactly how to be. I even knew how to think with the white coat on, but I didn't give myself the credit for knowing how to think when it was off or I was away from the patient bedside. So that really messed with my mind quite a bit because I had all the feedback and all the accolades for my performance as a physician. And yet I wouldn't let that penetrate down to the fact that I actually did the work. Yeah. I always find it interesting because you'll hear the advice, fake it till you make it. And I've often been like, oh, if I could just embody that more, because I always feel like everyone is faking it to a degree. I'm not under the illusion at this point in my life that other people really do have it all figured out. But I do think when people can fake it to a certain degree, it's like you then convince yourself of the performance and you start to believe your own hype. So I think I've always been more like, why do I need to be so self-critical of my performance? It seems like other people are really into the performances they're giving. 
I've always had a problem with the fake it till you make it thing. Not that I haven't tried it a million times, yeah. just because for somebody with imposter syndrome, that's the worst place to be is to pretend because you're yes. already pretending. At the same time, I experience and just allowing yourself the time and the space to become good at something, which maybe can qualify as faking it, is important to making it. For me, that personally, though, hasn't worked, hasn't been good enough. Yeah. I don't know if it's maybe a distinction between medicine and, and comedy, or you also feel this in medicine, but I think I'm always just constantly seeing peers doing things and then being like, I can't do anything like that. Or, sure. no, I would never come up with that idea. It's so ingenious or creative. So I think I'm always finding ways to put myself lower on the ladder than the people around me. Oh, absolutely. I did that reading the intro to your book. Yeah. Because I'm also <laughs> writing about imposter syndrome, mostly for as a therapeutic experience, because it really is. You write beautifully. And so I was like, oh, I could never say it that way. And oh, no. I missed <laughs> so funny. Because I read so much in writing the book, and I would always be like, this person said it better than I ever could. So I'll just put their words in here, too. <laughs> <laughs> I realized I might have committed a bit of journalistic malpractice here by not asking you, Aparna, and maybe Bianca, you can chime in on this, for just a very clear definition of imposter syndrome for people who've never heard of it before. Yeah, my understanding is it just this pervasive sense of feeling like a fraud or feeling like any success or achievement you've encountered has been a circumstance like due to luck or just a fluke and you can't really, you don't see yourself as responsible in any way for any achievement or positive thing that you've done. And those feelings eclipse any ownership you feel over your success. Yeah, I agree with a real emphasis on there being objective evidence to the contrary. And that just, it's like, you just can't accept that as truth. In the first line of your book, Aparna, you call imposter syndrome an identity. What do you mean by that? I think for me, at least, it feels like that's the one thing I can count on in the way that I've thought about myself is just my insecurity or my self-doubt, which I think feels maybe weird to say because it's often a shaky feeling we have about ourselves where you're not sure what exactly constitutes you or what you're capable of. But I feel like that's the one thing that's been a through line in a lot of my life. So I guess in that way, it does feel like a core part of my identity, just always be questioning, who am I? Like, where do I fit into this scenario? What am I bringing to the table that other people aren't? And just constantly finding ways that maybe I fall short or I'm not doing something that's expected of me. So the fraud, the suspicion of fraud and the feelings of self-doubt become what you define yourself by as opposed to yeah. your talents or your character. Yes. Yeah, I think it's that feeling, because I know this has been talked about before on the podcast, but just that feeling that, yeah, sure, everyone thinks they're faking it, but I actually am. So mm. <laughs> that makes me a little different. That's the line maybe between garden variety insecurity and full-on imposter syndrome, which is I might feel like I'm faking it sometimes or 
I can't believe I'm getting away with this or that they let me through security at my job. Right. But I don't actually have a bedrock conviction that I am thoroughgoingly full of shit. Yes, but you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing I think in talking, because I talked to, you know, peers of mine about their own experiences with imposter syndrome when I was working on the book. And I think it's safe to say everyone has had these feelings at some point in their life, but it is, yeah, the big differentiation is how you respond to them. And I remember one friend I spoke to was just like, yeah, I would just love to have more opportunities to have imposter syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, I'm ready for the success. Just give it to me and (laughs) fine, I'll be humble about it, but I need those opportunities first. I think what you said earlier, though, when you were presenting how the thought process goes, the first half of it involved just questioning the situation, which I don't think is inherently bad. And it shows a certain degree of open-mindedness and almost like metaphysical questions about what it means to be here and find yourself in certain opportunities. And it's when we flip over into useless rumination and the things that start to work against us but I would worry about the people who don't reflect necessarily on how they got there and, you know, at times try to check themselves about belonging or doing enough work or whatever that may be. We just need to like turn down the volume on it. Yeah, that's a great observation. Cause I think I always have envied those people for their ability to just not overthink things and just proceed without that caution that I think frames everything I do. And I think I tend to, like you're saying, get caught up in the existential questions where they come up and then I just wander off on that train of thinking and like completely forget that things are being asked of me and people are like, write 10 jokes. And I'm like, why are how did I even end up here? Like, how are any of us here? You know, and I'm like, that's not what you want. (laughs) That's not what you want by 5 p.m. today. (laughs) (laughs) Just getting back to your carrying this imposter syndrome into Hollywood, which is so fickle and superficial, not to denigrate the whole industry, but the fickleness and the superficiality, <laughs> yeah, are definitely there. And I know you you write about in your book about having a few surgeries, cosmetic surgeries, and was that all part of an effort to fit in? Did it play into the imposter feelings? Yeah, I think so. I think you know, at the time, it was maybe I was in my twenties, so I think it's also just the vanity of being like, "What can I fix about myself?" Like I have just these few things, and then I'll be perfect, or whatever you're thinking in your brain. But I do think because I was pursuing a career in entertainment, where there is such an emphasis on how you present and the first thing people think when they look at you, I think it did feel like a matter of just career savvy to be like this. And this aren't working. Let me just tweak them before I keep going. But yeah, and I think it still fits into this mindset of just there is a right way to be and I'm not that. And how can I get closer to that? To what extent do race and gender fit into this feeling of not fitting in? Yeah, I mean, I think just by virtue of the fact of not seeing maybe as many examples of someone who looks like me represented in the career path I pursued, I think that often 
has the effect of both the scarcity mentality where you're like, oh, there's only so many spots for me or like someone who looks like me. And then there's also just the everyone you are comparing yourself to is like part of a bigger, different demographic or like the status quo. And what does that do to your sense of self? Does that make you want to diminish the things that make you stick out more? Or do you want to lean into them more? Like, I think you just are faced with maybe questions that someone who isn't like a woman of color, for instance, face. It reminds me, Bianca and I were talking over the last 24 hours in preparing to talk to you about this article that showed up in the Harvard Business Review written by two black women. I think the title was something along the lines of stop telling women they have imposter syndrome. And I'm probably going to mangle the thesis of the article, but it was something along the lines of it's not imposter syndrome. They're speaking for themselves. Our feelings of struggle within professional context are not imposter syndrome. It's racism. It's the fact that this system, this structure is set up to disadvantage people who look like us. What are your thoughts? You're familiar with this work and what are your thoughts on that argument? Yeah, I'm fully on board with that argument because I think I referenced that article particularly. But I think just the idea that imposter feelings are an individual level problem rather than just a reaction to the systems that people are faced with is the distinction that I think we need to make going forward in the conversation about imposter syndrome, where where I feel like these feelings are not just because of me and like how I was raised or like some formative events in my childhood. But it's also just we are in systems where you're if you don't fit into certain ideals, you're told that you're going to have to like fit in better or like make sense better to keep going here or maybe there isn't a place for you at all. So I think those feelings naturally come up with some of the environments that I've been in. I've always wondered about this argument. I agree with it. And you could apply it to plenty of other aspects of our culture and society that there are structural fixes required. Yeah. And it's a lot for any one of us as individuals to make all of those changes. And it does seem maybe useful for people like you and Bianca to come out and talk about imposter syndrome and what can be done about it on an individual level, while also pointing to the fact that structural fixes are needed too. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And I also think the tricky thing about imposter syndrome is The way like nowadays it has become kind of a buzzword. Do you have it? Maybe so many of us have it and we should talk about it more. But I think it's the same thing as with like mental health awareness where like I'm just afraid of like how everything gets commodified and it is it becomes like this trendy thing. Oh, yeah, maybe we all have imposter syndrome a little bit and kind of dilutes the actual conversation or like broadens it in a way where. Are we actually changing anything or are we just hooking onto a trend and riding it out? I feel the same way about the term. And of course, the original term is imposter phenomenon and you could relabel it however you want, but it has become so commonplace. Imposter syndrome, narcissism, trauma, these words have just become diluted so much But it also doesn't mean they're not real. But I shudder every time now I say I'm writing about imposter syndrome because 
I want it to be taken seriously, no matter what you call it, because for me, it truly has been a significant source of anxiety and diminished well-being throughout my life. And one that I couldn't label until 2019, but in hindsight, I've never been without it because it's just who I was. And to echo what you said before, no doubt we need to have systemic change, but the individuals making the change also need to understand themselves, I think, better. And my particular path has been to identify roots of my thinking, whether through experiences or just the way my brain has developed. Because for me, taking some accountability, which is not to say blame, but just understanding who I am and where I came from helps me to dissect what is me and what is being exacerbated by the outside. Cause I can really only change or improve upon what is mine. And once I do, let me try to help others. But until I do the individual work, I don't know how effective I could be helping others. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And a great point. I think as someone who has spent years like working on myself, I've been in therapy and I realized that is, you know, a privilege to even have access to those resources for so long. I I do think that is, yeah, you can't underline how important it is to also just be aware of what is going on in yourself. But yeah, I guess it's the lip service versus actually wanting to reform a system. What have you done on an individual level to deal with your imposter syndrome, Parno? I'm quite familiar with all the work Bianca's done, the therapy, a little bit of meditation. What for you have been the levers? Yeah, my mine is similar, like therapy, meds, meditation, getting enough sleep, exercise, water. But yeah, I've, I feel like I've tried several things that kind of coincide with just working on mental health and dealing with anxiety and depression. But I think a lot of it is just learning to live with these insistent voices in my head and not necessarily giving them the driver's seat every time. Like they can be in the car, but yeah, but they don't have to be driving. Let's. I would love to take me through a moment. I don't know if it's preparing to put out this book or preparing to do this interview or getting up to do a show. I know you're doing a lot of shows in association with the publication of your book or going into audition for a part. In a moment like that, do the voices still, even after everything you've accomplished, come up? And what are your techniques for in the moment dealing with the voice? For me, I've gotten really into sort of body work and grounding. Like I've been doing tapping, which is tapping different parts of your body when you're like before a set or something, I'll do that. And you're just acknowledging like the feelings you're having while tapping different parts of your body and kind of allowing that to help you get them out or just let them not be as concentrated in your brain. So I have found like connecting with my body more as someone who lives so much in my own head has been really helpful with planting myself more firmly on the ground. I don't actually know anything about tapping. I've heard of it, but we haven't really covered it on the show. Can you say a little bit more about it? Yeah, I don't think I can speak to where it comes from or who invented it. But yeah, because I, I learned it off of a YouTube video, but it is, <laughs> I guess it's nine different points on your body. It's like the side of your hand, like your forehead, a different, a few different points on your face, and then like your chest under your armpit, top of your head. But you're just 
going through tapping these various parts and you just, you'll say things like, I'm feeling really anxious, like say what the thoughts are, like I'm scared, this show is not going to go well. And then as you're tapping the parts of your body, you then go through again and say, I give myself permission to relax, or I acknowledge that I've done this before. And like, I'm good at this. Like, I guess it can just be affirmations in the end, but I find it more effective than I have with just affirmations in the past is something about connecting with your body while saying them seems to lodge them in a way that didn't work for me when I was just like saying it and being like trying to absorb it. Yeah, because the saying of the affirmation can, I don't know what the data are on affirmations anyway, but I can imagine a scenario where just telling yourself something nice, you're still in your head. You're even yes. maybe even more in your head, but yeah. tapping into something south of the neckline can get you out of your head and use the word grounded. I think that probably is the appropriate word. It can make you feel more grounded. Yeah. And I think because these have been things I've been dealing with for so long, I'm always a little wary when something seems to help because I'm like, it's going to stop working and then I'm going to have to find the next thing. But it seems to be working for now. And I don't know if it's that things stop working or I just get lazy and stop doing them. It could be a combination (laughs) of both. To me, it's it really sounds like body work is a sort of a tenet of work with PTSD patients and healing in that regard. And I loathe to say that all imposter syndrome is equivalent to trauma. And certainly many of us have had a lot of actual trauma as might be defined formally, but we life is also trauma to some degree. But yeah. using the body, there's a lot of data on using body work to actually change processes in the mind and certainly your response to them, both at a biological basis and then at higher cognitive response. So I buy it. However it works, I think some of the tools that are used for trauma probably could be very relevant for severe imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I think like, I'd be the first person to say, I'm not always willingly doing these things. Like a lot of times I will be in my head and be like, yeah, it's not going to help if I just suddenly like tap parts of my body and then I just force myself to do it and it helps. So I think I am also always just learning to remember that my brain isn't always like the authority on what I need, regardless of what it says. Hmm. Well, also your brain is doing what it thinks it's supposed to do. In my experience, and I think others would probably say the same, most sort of acute imposter reactions like in the situation are fear responses. And so accessing the body is a way to stop that. But your brain is really trying to protect you from some perceived threat. It's just that threat isn't real. It's, It's our imagination. But to try to push away what our brains are doing for us is almost the wrong message. It's almost welcome, but chill out. But the more we push it away, the sort of angrier it gets. Yeah. It's like what Aparna said before. You can be in the car with me, but you just yeah, can't have exactly. the wheel. Yeah, I love that. Coming up, Aparna and Nancharla talks about how imposter syndrome relates to anxiety and depression, procrastination, and how she sometimes feels like it sets her up to do good work, even though uh, she hates it, and the difference between stand-up and therapy for her.
The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Many of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. Therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. This is something I've spoken about at length for many years with with my therapist as somebody with a pronounced tendency toward overscheduling, working on figuring out what I care most about, what matters most to me, has been very useful when it comes to setting priorities. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy to use website. And they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Don't forget to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. We are offering subscriptions to the 10% Happier app at a 40% discount until the end of the month. Get this deal before it ends by going to 10percent.com slash 40. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash 40 for 40% off your subscription. Both of you have dealt with anxiety and depression. Do you think that is simply just comorbid with the imposter syndrome or causal? Or maybe the imposter syndrome is causing the anxiety and depression, or is it all one noxious stew and it's impossible to disambiguate? Yeah, I have trouble sometimes distinguishing everything because it's like they all feed each other. I think they all work together. But I do think Being prone to anxiety and depression probably makes me a more likely candidate to experience imposter feelings and to buy into them maybe in a deeper way than someone who maybe doesn't experience those things. I think for me, they are directly related, which is not to say I haven't had ample reasons to be anxious or even depressed on occasion, but I can certainly trace back imposter feelings to adolescence and certainly academically. And with that came a lot of anxiety directly related to test taking. And it ended up taking on a life of its own after that. But it was generally the same flavor of anxiety that stemmed from my initial self-doubt and problems in whatever academic field I was dealing with at the time. But then the patterns spilled over into other areas of life. And so they they had a different identity at some point, but I do believe the root largely came from this place in an unsupportive background with a chaotic household and all the things that don't help when you have self-doubt and strain. But 
I think personally that it's a major factor in my mental health. Bianca talked earlier about going back in therapy and trying to understand the roots of the imposter syndrome. Is that work that you've done as well, Aparna? Yeah, I think I started to talk a lot in therapy about where I formed certain ideas. So I think in that way, it has helped explain like the roots of my imposter feelings lie a lot in like growing up in a very achievement oriented household and very productivity oriented household, which are things that I would say our society already lauds, but I would say even more so in the household I was raised in, but also just perfectionism where nothing's quite good enough. I think all of that kind of feeds into these feelings of you're never quite enough for what is being asked of you. What do you think the difference is between perfectionism and imposter syndrome? I think they both feed into each other. For me, it's just, I always thought this was just a me thing, but just the feeling that anything you make is like inherently flawed because you made it, regardless of like how other people receive it, where it's just like someone else can tell you it's really good, but you're like, no, I was there when I made this and I can tell you it's not good. (laughs) Like (laughs) I have inside information that you don't know. (laughs) I think perfectionism, it certainly doesn't have to exist with imposter syndrome, but it it is a coping skill for imposter feelings. And actually, to go back to the question before, is probably more of a direct reason for the anxiety that just ends up fueling a habit because you're chasing the dragon. Like you, you think you can get there. There is a perfect place to end. Yes. And then the fact that you can never get there is actually more evidence of your incompetence Mm. or fraudulence, but you're never going to stop chasing it either because you've had micro successes with it or because you're so delusional and scared that you just have to go after it because clearly that's what you need to be up to snuff with all these other gifted humans that you somehow manage to be amongst in these fortunate professional places. Yeah. And my career has gotten more like it used to be where I would be in these group environments, like a writing job or something where you are, you're expected to show up at a certain time and kind of contribute in a certain way. But over the past few years, I've been self-employed and even writing this book, like I've been making my own schedule and I'm just, you know, a terrible worker. I would say if I'm my own boss, I would say I'm not, I don't show up. I don't do what's asked of me. Like I, I think because I'm chasing that dragon, my chosen strategy is to avoid and procrastinate until I have no choice but to start, like until the last minute. So I think I'm both chasing the dragon, but a lot of times just like rescheduling the dragon. (laughs) which is very common in imposter syndrome. You either procrastinate or you over-prepare. Yes. I'm a procrastinator as well, in part because I need that fear to push me. And sometimes I do my best work when I'm scared. Yeah. Which is another like unfortunate feedback loop. Yeah. Sometimes I'll try to sit down to write stand-up and I just will feel so uncomfortable and restless and fidgety and hate everything I think of. And then it'll be like the 10 minutes before I have to leave for a show. And suddenly I'll be like, oh, this is a good idea. And this is a good idea. And I'm always like, how can I 
recreate that sense of urgency on a daily basis where I, yeah, suddenly feel motivated and like adrenaline. I don't know. (laughs) I know. If you find out, let me know. Speaking of procrastination, you have a chapter called A Night in the Life of Revenge Bedtime Procrastination, RBP. What What's that all about? Yeah, so the, I have a tendency to stay up really late. And I think it is because I feel like the daytime, it, to me, whether that was starting with school or something and then going into work life later in adulthood, like... I feel like that is when society expects you to be productive. Those are the hours of the day when you should be doing, creating, whatever it is that constitutes your version of work. But then I feel like for me, nighttime is like a neutral zone. Nothing's quite really expected of you. You're kind of allowed to do whatever you like. So I think I'm always uh, fighting with myself to get things done during the day. And then I feel like by the time it gets to nighttime, I think I feel just this big sense of relief that the expectation is gone and like this feeling of falling short doesn't have to exist for a few hours. So I really just stay up later and later, like doing, sometimes I can't even account for what I did, but it's usually just surfing the internet or reading a book for too long. Even like after I'm starting to fall asleep, I'll just keep pushing it because I think I'm so grateful for these few hours where I feel like I don't have to look at myself as critically as I do during the day. I just hear in so many of the things you guys are talking about, like the procrastination loops, the perfectionism, the imposter syndrome, the anxiety, the depression, the structural issues. Like I can imagine there must be times where you're just tempted to throw your hands up and bail on the thing. Yeah, for sure. I have felt as I've gotten older, just less and less drawn to the markers of success or like ambition. I mean, everyone says this, like when you get the thing, it's never as great as your idea of getting the thing was in your head. But it really does feel to me like the things I value these days are like spending time with loved ones, like being in nature, like things that sound kind of pat, but they really do feel like the meaningful things at the end of the day. So I think sometimes my attitude towards work has become like almost, it's not worth being too precious about it because it's not the be all end all of who I am as a person or what makes my life meaningful. I just wonder whether that escape route from the toilet vortex of all the things I was listening before, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, anxiety, depression, that escape hatch into things that actually truly matter, your family, the cosmos, whether actually having that steam release valve can make the work better. Yeah, I think that's exactly it for me, having that distance from it. Like I think in the past, I would go existential and then use that as a way to berate myself or criticize myself. But now having that distance more gives me just a sense of This is like a cool thing I get to do and it doesn't, it's not my measurement as a person, but I think having that kind of different perspective on it actually makes it easier to do the work, like you're saying. I was lost in so much of what you said that I can relate to. The nature thing surprised me. We left New York City during COVID and as a city person, I never realized what I was missing and what a number 
the city was doing on my body. Of course, if your mind is buzzing like Dr. Katz in that old uh, Comedy (laughs) Central show where like the lines are just, you know, of the drawing or... And then your body is tense. Like, where where do you have to go? Like, what's your escape? And to be honest, mine was just being in my apartment and hiding if I didn't have to be somewhere else. And the second thing is being a doctor and maybe the same is true of being a comedian. It is your identity. We say, you probably say I'm a comedian, not I do comedy. I say I'm a doctor, not I practice medicine. Yeah. Because it is an identity. And for complicated reasons, I've had to separate from that identity, even though I also now appreciate it and own it even more, but I have a distance from it that was very difficult at first because there was void there, but now just feels so much more balanced and healthy and appropriate. Yeah. In writing this book, which is, I think sometimes or a lot of the times when comedians write books, it's like humorous essays or it's like a funny memoir. And I think I knew in advance that this book wasn't going to be all funny and it would be petty. And I think that in and of itself was scary to try to write something like that because I'm like, that's not what people expect from me or know about me. But then while I was writing it, I do feel like the imposter feelings came up so much in writing it that I had to stop performing pretty much during the entire course of writing the book because Mm. it just felt like I was really raw a lot of the time. And then I would try and Mm. get on stage and I think I would just internalize how the crowd was receiving me too much. So I really had to step away from it. And like you're saying, I like my identity was so wrapped up in just, I'm a comedian. That's what I do. That's what people want from me that I was like, I don't know if I step away from it, like who I really am, but I think even in making that decision, which was, I think, one of the hardest things I've done. And I wouldn't even say the break the whole time. I was just like, I did the right thing. I know what I'm doing. But I would say coming back to performing after taking this long break, like I would say it clarified so many things about like why I do it and like what I get out of it that I had just completely lost touch with before I took the break. So I really think in an art form where it is like very tied to like, you have to get up on stage, like whenever you can, don't take breaks. I'm just like, no, I think you have to do like what's right for you. And there is no one path that everyone has to conform to. I imagine too, with comedy, holding on to some of your anxiety and angst and trauma, I don't know for you how much of that is, is fodder for your actual act, but Maybe you don't want to get rid of all of it. Yeah, I go back and forth on that because I do. I started talking about mental, uh, my struggles with mental illness in my act. And it still is like we were talking about earlier. It's like this polished, more presentational way of looking at it. And there is still something cathartic I find about writing a joke or framing something in a humorous context to kind of look at it differently or take a little bit of the gravitas out of it. But I still think if I do a joke about anxiety on a show and then I'm really nervous before the show, like it's not like the joke like fixes, like I did the joke and then I'm like, but now they connected and now I'm no longer anxious. They're two different things. And it's, oh, I'm an artist who talks about this thing I experienced, but I think it's not necessarily that one is fully influencing the other. They're sort of almost their own categories. 
So doing the jokes, the struggles with mental health can produce some good comedy, but it's not that the comedy is that healing in the end. Yeah, I would say, at, at least not for me. I can't speak for everyone, but some people are like, getting on stage is my therapy. And I'm like, no, therapy is my therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, Aparna talks about how she feels about the word no and what it feels like to finally put this raw and revealing book out into the world. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the, the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. With over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries, there's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. When it comes to hiring, don't go searching for the one. Just meet your match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In the book, you write about something called the agreeability industrial complex. What's that? Yeah, that to me is just this belief, particularly for women, that we should always say yes or be accommodating or just kind of mold ourselves to fit the situation rather than forcing other people to change to fit what we want. Like that people pleasing, I guess, would be an easier way to say it. But that's something I've also struggled with a lot. And I think as in someone who has imposter feelings, it can be tricky where you're always trying to meet what other people want, but your your own sense of being able to achieve what they want is always under the microscope in terms of like, am I even giving them what they want? What's your relationship to the word no right now? I am very into the word no right now. I love saying no to things. I love 
canceling things, but I would say I've been better about not canceling and just saying no right away. That's like what I've been trying to work towards. So if this, if I agree to this thing, will I actually want to do it when the time comes? And now I'm better at gauging. No, this is not something I really think I have the capacity for right now or the interest in. And I can say no right out of the gate instead of waiting until the last minute. I really admire that. I think that's a big change for me as well. I'm not that great about it yet, but certainly when I do say no, what used to be like a no is now, no, thank you. And it gives you a sense of power. And anytime you can harness that, it fights against this notion that you're a fraud. Yeah. It's tricky because I do think sometimes with saying no, especially in show business or something, you're like, if I say no to this, they're not going to ask me to do anything ever again. Or if I say no to this and then my peer says yes to this, maybe this will lead to their next big thing. And I could have done that thing. Like, I, I do think sometimes it feels like maybe this is a stepping stone to something else. But yeah, I think I've reached a point in my life where I'm like, I'm okay shutting down possible opportunities just because you don't have to like see where everything leads all the time. I think I used to be under the impression of, I should be thankful they even asked me. And now I'm just like, yeah, I I mean, I'm glad they asked me, but I also just don't think this would be a good fit on either end. Hmm. I think Dan is just starting to get that. He may not have (laughs) imposter syndrome, but he definitely has had a hard time saying no. Yeah, well, I was just thinking about that, that it's not so much that, I was saying yes because I'm a people pleaser because I don't think I'm that much of a people pleaser. It's more that I was saying yes because I'm afraid. And just what you were saying, Aparna, I need to chase every opportunity or everything's going to dry up and I'm going to be, the whole family will be homeless. Yeah, that's a very real fear. And I think you're always reading interviews with people where they're like, I did this thing and that was the way I met this person. And then we ended up working together. They gave me a big break or something like there's always that story. So I think like even with auditioning in Hollywood, you're always like, I'll just give a tape. And then who knows? Like you do that for years and years until you're just like, okay, maybe they're not watching the tape, (laughs) (laughs) which is some would say that's depressing, but I'm just like, No, it's also a way to be like, take more ownership over your time and be like, I don't always have to be like looking for that outside validation of we recognize your greatness. I'm like, I can also find that meaning in my own way, in my own life. And it doesn't need to be this like external marker of success or someone else giving me the go ahead. What's your relationship to anger right now? Anger? That's a good question. I've been trying to let mine be more, but I would still say I'm, I have a fear-based relationship towards it in that when it shows up, I'm sort of still mistrustful of it and unsure if I can really let it out without there being like unforgivable consequences. That's maybe overly dramatic, but I am always just skeptical. Anger can be like a healthy or useful emotion, even though I know that it is just as important as the other ones. Just a few more questions for me, and and these involve me quoting you back to you. And so I'm going to quote you, and then when I stop, maybe you can say a little bit about it. You write, sometimes I wish I didn't have to address my identity at all. It's not like when I wake up in the morning, I think, ah, just another day of being a quiet South Asian American woman in a culture dominated by whiteness, better live my truth. 
But then you go on to say that, like, in many ways, you represent more than just yourself. Can, mm-hmm. can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a push and pull. I think whenever you embody maybe a more marginalized identity or something that people don't see as often, you are maybe being analyzed or scrutinized in a way that someone who doesn't fit that mold is. But at the same time, I think you're still a person with the three-dimensionality that comes with that. So sometimes you just want to be a person first. So I think it's constantly wrestling with that back and forth of, oh, people are perceiving me in this specific way, but sometimes I just don't want to have to worry about that or even think about it at all. Yeah, I have a friend who talked, I've mentioned this on the show before, so I apologize to anybody who remembers me saying this and I apologize for the repetition, but I have a friend, Kiana, she's achieved a lot of success in television news and she talks a little bit about the tax that black women pay, probably true for women or anybody of color. And the tax is that she's not just striving for success for herself. It's like she's carrying her race and gender along for the ride. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, it does. And then again, the imposter feelings come in where I'm like, yeah, but I'm not the like right version of what people want when they want like the representation. Like I am i don't have that broad appeal or something of like a Mindy Kaling or something, but I, yeah, you know, I'll have a lot of young South Asian women of color be like, you're the reason I do comedy. Or like when I saw you perform, I realized it was something I could pursue. And I, I still have trouble sometimes like being able to really accept that or internalize that notion that I represented something to them that made them feel empowered in some way. Because I think for me, I just, I often feel so outside of any group, like internally, like regardless of external identity, that I just forget sometimes that those are markers that other people really go by. I was having dinner with some female friends last night, they're friends of both of ours, but I was the only one at the dinner of this marriage. And one of the women at the table who's actually been on the show before was talking about something similar to you that she was saying that people come up to her and praise her and she gets awkward and, and she's learned to just say, thank you. Yeah. I'm always very grateful when that happens and try to be gracious. But then I also talk about being fairly socially awkward in my act and like shy. So usually then they'll be the one who'll have to end the interaction where they'll be like, okay, I know you're uncomfortable. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm like, thank you. I'm glad I've advertised that enough that people don't feel the need to drag it out. Let me wrap up on this quote in the book. You write, I wanted to write this book to fix my imposter syndrome, but that's saying I'm going to sleep my way through this plate of food. So we we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it's wise to go back to it at this point. Like you've written the book, you're just starting the process of getting out in the world and talking about it. Where are you with your imposter syndrome now? I think it's a, it's thankfully, because I've gone through a lot of agonizing moments of really questioning the book, questioning myself, questioning everything. But I think I'm finally at a place where you hope to be sometimes as an artist where you put something out into the world or you're kind of like, you know, you realize you can no longer tweak something or really qualify it anymore. And it's not really my 
job anymore to really gatekeep how my book is taken in or what happens from this point on. Like it's a little bit out of my hands and just embracing like being able to have it done and be moving on the next thing and not be in in the midst of the turmoil of creating it. I have found some freedom there. It started as what's next, like uncertainty about the future, but now it's okay. This is a snapshot from a certain point in my life that I created and I'm excited to talk to people about it. And I'm not thankfully as worried as I used to be about how is it going to do and like how successful will it be? Obviously, those are on my mind, but I think I'm at this point, that's not going to at the end of the day determine how I feel about having done it and created it and put it out in the world. I certainly appreciate that you did. Thanks. And I'm sure you're better off for it. The writing process is hard, but super therapeutic. And it will be for other people reading it as well. I have two little questions I always ask in closing. One is, is there something I should have asked, but I failed to ask? Oh, I don't think so. Please say something. (laughs) (laughs) Give him a complex. (laughs) I feel like you were very thorough. I feel like you touched on all the elements that came forward. Okay, then I'll ask my actual last question, which is, can you please shamelessly plug your book and anything else you've put out into the world you want people to know about? Sure, I I will plug the book. I am not going to plug anything else just because there's a strike and I don't want to, I don't want to mess up any of those things. But I, yes, the book is called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. And then I will also be doing some East Coast, West Coast Midwest tour dates once the book comes out. So all of that information is available at my website, parnacomedy.com slash shows. I think that's the spiel. We'll put the links, the tour links, the Amazon links, all that stuff in the show notes. Aparna and Nancharla, really appreciate your time. It was really nice to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you, Aparna. Thanks. Thanks again to Aparna and Nancharla. And you can check her out on her book tour, which will be mostly stand-up, she says. This fall, all the dates are on aparnacomedy.com. Thanks very much to you for listening to the show. We cannot and would not do it without you. I genuinely appreciate it. And thanks most of all to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Tara Anderson, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, and Lauren Smith. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio and Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote our theme. Check out the new Islands record. Just came out. Very, very good. We'll see you all on Monday for a brand new episode. A bit of a departure for us. Naomi Klein is coming on. She talks generally about things like uh, politics and capitalism and climate change. And we talk a little bit about that stuff, but she's written a new book that's very memoir-ish and... uh, really gets into some of the issues that we talk about a lot on this show, like how to stay sane in in the online world, the uh, ephemeral nature of the self, et cetera, et cetera. Fascinating conversation that's coming up on Monday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.